Our scripture reading for today comes from the book of Judges. We are continuing in that book uh, and looking toward the uh, end of it in a couple of weeks. Uh, But today we're looking at Judges chapters 17 and 18. And I'll be reading chapter 17, verses 1 through 13, and then chapter 18, verses 27 through 31. And this is found on pages 216 through 218 in your pew Bibles. Again, we're starting at Judges 17, verse 1. Let's give our attention to the hearing of God's word. There was a man of the hill country of Ephraim whose name was Micah. And he said to his mother, the 1,100 pieces of silver that were taken from you about which you uttered a curse and also spoke it into my ears, behold, the silver is with me. I took it. And his mother said, blessed be my son by the Lord. And he restored the 1,100 pieces of silver to his mother. And his mother said, I dedicate the silver to the Lord from, the hand, from my hand for my son to make a carved image and a metal image. Now, therefore, I will restore it to you. So when he restored the money to his mother, his mother took 200 pieces of silver and gave it to the silversmith who made it into a carved image and a metal image. And it was in the house of Micah. And the man Micah had a shrine, and he made an ephod and household goods and ordained one of his sons who became his priest. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Now there was a young man of Bethlehem in Judah, of the family of Judah, who was a Levite, and he sojourned there. And the man departed from the town of Bethlehem in Judah to sojourn where he could find a place. And as he journeyed, he came to the hill country of Ephraim, to the house of Micah. And Micah said to him, where do you come from? And he said to him, I am a Levite of Bethlehem in Judah, and I am going to sojourn where I may find a place. And Micah said to him, stay with me and be to me a father and a priest, and I will give you ten pieces of silver a year and a suit of clothes and your living. And the Levite went in. And the Levite was content to dwell with the man, and the young man became to him like one of his sons. And Micah ordained the Levite, and the young man became his priest, and was in the house of Micah. Then Micah said, Now I know that the Lord will prosper me because I have a Levite as priest. And then skipping down to chapter 18, verse 27. But the people of Dan took what Micah had made. And the priest who belonged to him, they came to Laish, to a people quiet and unsuspecting, and struck them with the edge of the sword and burned the city with fire. And there was no deliverer, because it was far from Sidon, and they had no dealings with anyone. It was in the valley that belongs to Beth Rahab. Then they rebuilt the city and lived in it, and they named the city Dan, after the name of Dan their ancestor, who was born to Israel, but The name of the city was Laish at the first. And the people of Dan set up the carved image for themselves. And Jonathan, the son of Gershom, son of Moses, and his sons were priests to the tribe of the Danites until the day of the captivity of the land. So they set up Micah's carved image that he made as long as the house of God was at Shiloh. Here ends the reading of God's word. Now, 
So, perhaps you are familiar with the ever-present to-do list. Uh, I don't know if you make one of those. I am uh, married to my planner. Uh, I have an an old-school paper day timer that I still write everything down in, and it's where I keep all of my notes, because I am of such an age that I cannot remember everything that I'm supposed to do or everything that I've done. And so this is a good way for me to, uh, to remember what I need to do every day. But what we're presented with in our passage today is not a to-do list. The, the actors in today's account are not at all giving us Uh, a a good example of what good people uh, who believe in a good God should do. Rather, we have a what-not-to-do list. That's because everything Micah does in chapters 17 and 18, and everything that his mother does, and everything that the Levite priest does, is unequivocally wrong and will bring death and destruction. The account of Micah shows us not only the story of a single man whose pride and arrogance and disregard for God's word resulted in hard consequences for himself, but also hard consequences for his family and eventually for his whole nation. So we're entering into the final part of the book of Judges, and it marks a, a change in the narrative of the book. Thus far from chapters 1 through 16, the book has presented a chronological account of the people of Israel from the death of Joshua until um, just prior to the start of the monarchical or the the kingly period. Chapters 3 through 16 have been a chronological account of all the work of all of the judges of Israel from Othniel through Samson. But chapters 17 through 21, where we start today, are asynchronous. And that means that Uh, along with the rest of the book, they don't follow chronologically after Samson. The next chronological events in the history of Israel after Samson are found in the book of 1 Samuel, probably starting around verse, I'm sorry, starting around chapter 4, when the Philistines capture the Ark of the Covenant. Remember that the Philistines were the antagonists during the period when Samson judged Israel, and so they probably continued to harass the nation for some time after Samson. Because, as you recall, the end of Samson's story was not a victorious one. Samson did not prevail over the Philistines uh, as a a nation. And uh, the Lord did not give Israel a time of peace after Samson. All this to say that chapters 17 through 21 occur at some point during the time of the Uh, events of chapters 3 through 16. And as a matter of fact, the account of Micah probably occurs pretty early in the book, perhaps even before the time of the first judge. And I'll explain why a little bit later. There there are a couple of clues uh, later on in the story that lead us to believe that. So why why does the Lord include chapters 17 through 21 in the book of Judges? Why are they in his word? Uh, One of the things that we'll see today and in the subsequent weeks is that these are are hard chapters that we're about to read. There's a lot that goes wrong. There's a lot that seems unredemptive. There's a lot that seems unabashedly evil 
Why would the Lord allow uh, these things to be a part of uh, this uh, wonderful story that is pointing us toward our need of uh, a good king? Well, in a sense, they provide a context for what's going on in Israel during the time of the judges, and they provide this, this color commentary, which adds depth and context to what was going on in Israel during that time. They give us a snapshot of the religious and the moral corruption that was taking place in Israel and that held Israel in bondage. And really the enemies from which the judges provided deliverance, the the, uh, fighting men of the Moabites, the Midianites, the Canaanites, the Ammonites, the Philistines, they weren't the worst enemies of Israel. They were the greatest felt need, but they weren't the most dangerous enemies. Remember that the Lord only allowed those people to oppress Israel after what? After Israel failed to do God's will by driving them out of the land in the first place. Then Israel befriended the peoples of the land. And then Israel began to uh, do business with and intermarry with these people. And then Israel began to worship the gods of these people. Israel increasingly disregarded God's word And as the frequent refrain of Judges reminds us, they did what was right in their own eyes. And it was after all of this, um, as as, as it's part of a cycle and the cycle repeats itself, it was after all of this that God allowed the people of the land to subdue his people as a natural consequence of Israel's idolatry. And so here in chapters 17 and 18, We have the story of Micah, whose name ironically means, who is like Yahweh? And so his name is is meant to be a constant reminder of God's goodness and his holiness. But contrary to his name, Micah disregards everything Yahweh has instructed him to do. We see in Micah's narrative a picture of the religious corruption in Israel. And next week we'll begin to see a picture of the moral corruption in Israel as we look at the story of a Levite who commits unspeakable acts to save his own life. But first, today, let's delve into Micah's story. We won't use points per se. This will be more kind of a, a, a rambling sermon, but four, four touch points, if you want to call them that. Uh, the first is Micah's private sin. The second is... Uh, Micah's public sin, and then generational sin, and then what it looks like to repent. And so private sin, public sin, generational sin, and what it looks like to repent. So the account of Micah opens up with the first thing we shouldn't do, and that is steal. In verse 2, Micah confesses that he stole a large amount of silver from his mother. 1,100 pieces of silver sounds like a lot of money, and I'm sure it was. And how do we know that it was a lot of money? Well, if you were paying attention in verse 10, when the wandering Levite comes to Micah and Micah hires him as a priest, what what is the priest's annual salary? Ten pieces of silver a year. So Micah stole 1,100 pieces of silver, which is enough to pay this Levite for 110 years. So that's, I'm guessing, a lot of money. 
Not that the amount of money that Micah stole uh, should be our focus, but the fact that he stole it is our focus. He stole it from his own mother. But then it gets worse. Verse 2 also tells us that the reason for Micah's confession is not repentance, but because he was afraid. He he felt guilty. Uh, Micah says that he heard his mother proclaim a curse on whomever stole the silver, and he did not want to be the recipient of that curse. Also in verse 2, we see Micah's mother's response to to Micah's behavior. And there's something I want you to keep in mind here. Micah's mother sounds really kind and really forgiving. And she says, uh, blessed be uh, my son in the name of the Lord. But this is something that she shouldn't have done. And why shouldn't she have done that? Micah's mother doesn't seem to be forgiving Micah here. She seems to be overlooking the entire incident in the first place. She seems to be overlooking the fact that her son stole from her and lied to her. And why is that a bad thing? Why is it a bad thing for her to to not hold Micah accountable for his sin? Because the loving thing for a parent to do, the loving thing for anyone to do, is to name sin as sin and to hold sinners responsible for what they've done. And it doesn't mean that you don't forgive, but what it means is you also don't not call sin, sin, because if you're doing that, you're not giving the other person an opportunity to repent. By the time all this is happening with Micah, the people of Israel should have had the book of Deuteronomy. Uh, It is traditionally written by Moses. And in Deuteronomy uh, chapter 8, verse 5, Moses tells us that as a man disciplines his son, so the Lord your God disciplines you. And then if God disciplines us as sons, as the writer of Hebrews uh, reiterates Moses' words from Deuteronomy, shouldn't Micah's mother have held Micah responsible for his sin? Shouldn't she have said, Micah, what you did was wrong. What you did was hurtful. What you did created a breach between us, and what you did was an offense to God. You need to repent. That's what a loving response would have been. You know, we often fail to make this distinction, but godly discipline is different from punishment. Godly discipline isn't saying uh, to Micah in this instance, Micah, you know, you have... You have destroyed our relationship. You need to get out of the house, uh, and I never want to see your face again. Uh, that's, that's not necessarily godly discipline. That, that is punishment. Godly discipline holds the person accountable for his or her sin and allows the natural consequences of those sins to be experienced, but it also proclaims forgiveness of sins when the sinner truly repents. Because isn't the object of having sin brought into the light that we would repent and that the Lord would work to sanctify us through that process? Isn't that what Paul means in... um, uh, Sorry, I had a brain moment. Um, In Ephesians chapter 5 where he says that when sin is brought into the light, it, it what? It becomes light. 
It becomes an opportunity for the Spirit to come in and to do the transforming work of saying, you have sinned, you have acted selfishly, you have disregarded the Word of God, and yet you are forgiven. And how should you respond to that forgiveness? Paul tells us in Romans 2.4 that God's kindness toward us is meant to lead to our repentance. It's meant to lead to our trusting Him more, loving Him more, and acting differently in the future based on that relationship. But Micah's mom doesn't allow Micah to experience the consequences of his grand larceny. She's not even honest enough with her son to say, son, you broke my heart and you've lost my trust. She pretends like it never even happened. But then she makes it worse. In verses 3 and 4, mom adds to Micah's sin. going to take a second. (coughs) I'm sorry. One of the autoimmune um, diseases that I have um, sometimes makes it difficult for me to swallow and then I choke. So we'll just take a second. Um, So Micah's mom goes in and she makes it worse in verses 3 and 4. She first dedicates the restored silver to the Lord, but in verse 3, she says what? She wants Micah to have a carved image and a metal image made from the silver. Now, obviously, idolatry had been a part of the worship pattern of Micah's family for a while. Otherwise, why would mom say, hey, I want you to take some of the silver that I'm giving to you and have these statues uh, made for you to worship. Uh, It it must have been part of what they did as a family. Well, this brings up the question of what's wrong with making images. Well, the problem with making images of God or any other God is that it's explicitly forbidden by God in the second commandment. And this is what we're talking about here. Images not of gods of the neighboring people, which would be a violation of the first commandment, but she is saying, I want you to make an image of Yahweh. And I want you to put it in your house, and I want it to be the object of your worship. And so what she's encouraging Micah to do is to have something like the the golden calf that Aaron made in Exodus chapter 32 for the people of Israel to worship. Mom believed that taking the silver she had dedicated to the Lord and making idols out of it was something that would honor the Lord, but she couldn't have been more wrong. But then she adds to her own sin uh, again in verse 4, because even though she dedicated 1,100 pieces of silver to the Lord, she uses only 200 pieces to make the, the idols. So she shortchanges the Lord what she had promised to give him in the first place. And last, in verse 5, the camera turns back to Micah, and we see that he has actually a shrine in his house. And the word for shrine in Hebrew uh, is actually uh, translated roughly into house of the Lord. So Micah has set up uh, his own little church, um, 
what he's done is he not only has that shrine, and in addition to the two new idols, uh, Micah has made an, uh, an ephod, which is a priestly garment. Uh, it's like a vest that uh, the, the priest would wear, and it had 12 stones representing the 12 tribes of Israel. And it's something that uh, the priest would wear when the priest was prophesying for God. And so the, the reason that Micah had an ephod is because instead of going to the place that God had determined that his people should go to worship him, Micah says, well, I'm, I'm so important, I'm going to have my own place of worship with my own ephod, and instead of having to go to some other city to ask God what his will is, I'm just going to do that all in my own house. I'm going to do it from the comfort of my living room. I'm going to discern God's will in my own way. And so Micah is officially the first person in the Bible to start a house church because he ordains one of his own sons to be his priest. Again, something you can't do. God had ordained the city of Shiloh as the only place where worship was to occur. And that's where the tabernacle had been since the time of Joshua. And Micah's son was disqualified from being a priest because who could be priests? Could anyone be a priest? Was it something you, you found on Monster or, or LinkedIn? No, only the sons of Aaron could be priests. As a matter of fact, that's what they were supposed to be. They couldn't be anything else. And Micah's son was not a son of Aaron. Micah was from the tribe of Ephraim. So we see a lot of examples of things Micah and his family shouldn't have done in verses 1 through 5. But how does this relate to us? Well, Micah and his family weren't truly worshiping God or honoring him in any sense. They believed that they were. But what they were really doing was creating their own religion. Creating their own religion. Doing, as the refrain of Judges goes, what was right in their own eyes. And that's precisely the explanation that the writer of Judges provides in verse 6. He says, in those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Kind of as a, a bookend to this horrible story of Micah and his mother committing all of these sins. The reason they did it was because they thought it was right. And they thought that they were honoring God in doing it all. That's the worst part. We don't read about any ill intent. We don't read about any malfeasance. We don't read about any overt arrogance. They think that this is the right thing to do. And how do they know, and how do we know it's not the right thing to do? It's because God's word is explicitly different. They just didn't care to consult God's word. So why... Is Micah's sin, his private sin, and the private sin of his mother such a problem? After all, they're not perfect. And like we just said, they probably didn't have bad intentions uh, in what they were doing. Perhaps this was the style and the character of worship that made them feel closer to the Lord. They must have thought themselves to be very pious, to have such expensive idols and an ephod and a priest of their own. Surely God would have been pleased by their enthusiasm, even if they were a little bit wrong. But the problem was that their enthusiasm wasn't a zeal for God's glory. Rather, it was for them to feel better about themselves in their own piety. 
Micah and his mother didn't worship God primarily. They worshipped themselves through their own self-made religion. They wanted to worship God on their terms, and I dare speculate they wanted others around them to see them as pious. After all, how many people around them had gone to such expense to create a whole church in their home? And so the question I have for you this morning is, what does your own religion look like? We all have a little bit of Micah and his mom in us. We all want God to be more accessible to us. We all want God to uh, bless the things that we really want to do. God says that he wants his people to worship him in spirit and in truth. And yet, we add all different things to God's requirements because we want to seem more worthy of his love or at least more worthy than our neighbors. So what is it for you? What, what do you add to the worship of God that makes you feel better? Is it good works? Is it bragging about uh, how much you do for your church? Is it complaining that uh, you do too many good things and don't have enough time for yourself? Is it feeling superior to your neighbors or family because of the good things you do? Is it making your own sacrificial good works for the true worship of the Lord? Um, I'm sorry, is it mistaking your own sacrificial good works for the true worship of the Lord? I experience that frequently throughout my life. The Lord brings me to points uh, in my life where I realize that I have been doing that very thing. And one that sticks in my mind is uh, when I applied to Westminster Seminary about 22 years ago at this point. Um, I had felt ready to go to seminary. I had been wanting to go to seminary for a long time. And part of the application process is you had to list all of your prior ministry experience. And at that time, I was a young man in my 30s, and I began listing everything that I had done. I went back, and I remembered, you know, I was the Sunday school superintendent, and I wrote the church newsletter, and I played the piano, and I played the organ, and I led the youth group, and I did this, and I did this, and I did this, and I did this, and I did this. And I remember sitting at the computer, um, you know, looking at this list of things I had just written out and thinking, wow, you've done a lot. And I remember in that voice that we are never supposed to acknowledge that we hear, the Lord said to me as clearly as I'm speaking to you, you did all this for yourself, not for me. And he was right. Because I wanted other people to see my good works. I wanted other people to say, well done, Tim. You're such a hard worker. You're such a good boy. Is there anything wrong with getting praise for what we do for the Lord? No. But if that's our motivation, if that's what spurs us on to continue doing it, then that's sin. That's doing what Micah and his mom did. Making themselves look and feel more pious than the people around them. Just because of time, I'm going to um, abbreviate some of the, the rest of the sermon. Uh, we've talked about Micah's private sin and his mother's private sin, but now we move more into the public sphere. In verses 7 and 8, 
we see that Micah's sin is about to open up and impact even more people. We're told that a young man of Bethlehem, a Levite, was looking for a place to sojourn. So what's wrong with that? Well, the tribe of Levi was unique among the 12 tribes of Israel in two respects. One was that the Levites were the ones assigned to serve the Lord in his temple. And so the sons of Moses, one, one very particular uh, subdivision of the Levites, were the ones who were to serve as priests. But then everyone else from the tribe of Levi was supposed, was, yeah, supposed to serve in support roles throughout the tabernacle and the temple. So um, this Levite uh, was supposed to be serving at the tabernacle, uh, and he wasn't doing that. The Levites uh, were not given an inheritance from the Lord. This is the second way in which they're unique. They weren't given an inheritance from the Lord in the form of a land to call their own, but they were uh, given 48 cities among the other 11 tribes uh, where they were uh, supposed to be given land for their own crops and their own cattle uh, to make a living for themselves when they weren't serving. And so here is a Levite, rather, living in Bethlehem with his parents, we assume. And what's wrong with that? Well, Bethlehem is not one of those 48 cities. And so both this young man and his parents had been sinning because they were living in a place that God said you shouldn't be living. And we assume that they were doing work that God said you shouldn't be doing. And this young man further complicates that sin by now going off to find his fortune doing something else. And he comes across Micah who willingly hires him to be a priest in his own home. And again, this seems like a good deal. The, the Levite is looking for a gig, and Micah offers it to him, and Micah even pats himself on the back, and he thinks he's going to earn extra uh, street cred with God because he said, uh, to, to quote him, he says, now I know that the Lord will prosper me, this is in verse 13, because I have a Levite as priest. So maybe with his own son as priest, he wasn't getting enough good things from the Lord. But now, surely God will see that I am following his word. I have a Levite as priest. And surely good things are going to happen now. Well, Micah, I'm sorry, but you keep throwing spaghetti at the wall and none of it sticks. You keep getting it wrong. You, you cannot do this. You cannot have your own family priest. And this guy shouldn't even be a priest in the first place. Micah is trying to, to uh, have his own religion, his own way, and what he's doing is he's not only uh, impacting himself and his mother anymore, now he's, he's brought in this young man, uh, and he's creating a situation where this young man continues to sin, and we assume that this, uh, this priest is now serving Micah's entire extended family. Because in that time, families don't live, didn't live, rather, like we do now, where every family has his or her own house. Uh, Micah and his family probably lived in a small compound where there were several generations uh, of Micah's family living together, and they all worshipped together. And then we move on to, to generational sin. The passage uh, that we read, the few verses that we read from the end of chapter 18, gives us 
a snapshot of what happens at the end of the story. Let me just fill in a, a few of the details. The, the tribe of Dan um, is mentioned at the beginning of chapter 18. And why is that uh, an interesting note? It's because the tribe of Dan, uh, it says, uh, we're seeking and this is in verse 1, we're seeking an inheritance to dwell in, for until then no inheritance among the tribes of Israel had fallen to them. Well, the, the English translation of our Bible doesn't get it exactly right because what actually happened is Dan had been given an inheritance by the Lord. Dan simply did not drive out the people who lived there as God had told them to. And we read this at the beginning of, of Judges. I think it's... Uh, Judges chapter 1, verse 32, that the people of Dan uh, refused to drive out the folks who already lived in the land. And as a result, the people who lived in the land drove the people of Dan up into the hills. And so because the people of Dan did not follow the Lord's will, they weren't able to live in the land that God had given to them. And now they were sending out spies to go and look for other places to relocate some place where the neighborhood's a little, a little safer, a little more amenable to fine country living. And so the, the five men who go out from the tribe of Dan to, to find a better place to live come across Micah, and they visit with Micah for a while. They recognize uh, this young man uh, who is serving as Micah's priest. Obviously, uh, he had been traveling uh, around and had been seen by them, or somehow they knew who he was. And they said, what are you doing here? And so the priest says everything that's happened. He said, you know, I was just walking down the road. Micah uh, brought me in. He found out I was a Levite. He hired me. Now I have this sweet deal. And look, look at these, look at these statues. Look at these things I get to use. Look, I have an ephod. I can consult the Lord. And so the people of Dan said, well, we have a better deal for you. Wouldn't it be better for you, instead of being a priest to just one household, if you were a priest to an entire tribe of God's people? Wouldn't that be a big promotion? Wouldn't that be more glory for you? And so the, the priest said, yeah, you're right. I'm going to go with you. And so that brings us up to... Chapter 18, verse uh, 27, where it says, The people of Dan took what Micah had made and the priest who belonged to him, and they came to Laish. So the people of Dan took the priest, and the priest took the carved image and the metal image and all of Micah's household gods and the ephod, and they all went off to the city called Laish, which the people of Dan then captured and made their new territory. So why am I telling you all of this? Because if you have your Bible open, look in uh, chapter 18, a few verses before the, the verse I just read. Uh, this is uh, starting in verse 23 of chapter 18. Uh, the, the people of Dan... Uh, turn around and said to Micah, what's the matter with you and why have you uh, come with such a company? Micah and some of his family were coming after them. 
And Micah said in verse 24, You take my gods that I have made and the priest, and you go away, from, you go away and what have I left? What have I left? Micah is devastated because the people of Dan have come and they have taken his priest and his idols and his ephod, the things that he had made, the things that he had spent his money on, the things that he was using to, to justify himself, the things that he was using to, to show himself off as pious before uh, his neighbors. And what a thing for him to say, what have I left? They didn't take his other belongings, as far as we know. They didn't take any of his servants. They didn't take any of his animals. They didn't take any of his wealth. They took his religion, his self-made religion, and it devastated him. When he's saying, what have I left? He's saying, essentially, what do I have left to live for? Who am I now that you've taken away this most important thing? He was devastated because now he had no identity. He had no justification before God, but more importantly to him, he had no justification and no standing in front of his neighbors. My friends, let me end with this. This is a very real danger to us. Whenever we add anything to the work of Jesus Christ as, as our salvation, as our hope, as our identity, we are putting ourselves on very, very shaky ground. The Lord sometimes takes those things away from us mercifully because he doesn't want us to create our own religions. He doesn't want us to have our own private saviors. He doesn't want us to create our own private uh, means of salvation or our means of justification. He wants us to depend entirely on him. He doesn't want us to get to the point where when he takes something like that away, we say, what have I left? But we say, Lord, I have nothing on heaven, in heaven or on earth but you. Nothing do I desire but you. You and I were made for the Lord. You and I were made to serve him. You and I were made to be obedient to him. You and I bear his image to the world. You and I bear his image to the world that we cannot see. To the invisible world of angels and demons. We bear God's glory. And there is no better glory than we could have besides that. If you are aware that you are, are cultivating any kind of religion besides resting in God's deliverance and his love alone, I encourage you, I encourage you to pray for grace to turn away from that. If there's anything you were adding to the work of Christ in order to make yourself feel better or to feel important or to feel superior, I encourage you to pray for grace to take that idol and to smash it into pieces. The Lord does want us to worship him in spirit and in truth, and he doesn't want anything to get in its way. Let's pray. Our Lord and Heavenly Father, 
We thank you that you are a God who is patient. You are a God who is kind. We thank you that you have given us this story of Micah uh, as not only a historical uh, picture of what went on thousands of years ago, but Lord, you give it to us as a warning to guard our own hearts and our own minds. And Lord, I, I pray because each one of us has in some way tried to add something to you, something to the work of Jesus in order for us to stand before you. Lord, I, I pray that, um, that you would not allow us to stand in our own strength, to hold on to our own idols that we have made. Lord, I pray that we would honor you and you alone as Lord and Savior and God. All this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.